0: What will
1: you do without freedom? Will you fight? Welcome to Leverage Addicts, the podcast for investors looking to maximize returns through leverage. Join host, seasoned mortgage professional and real estate enthusiast, Brandon Lerm, as we explore property investing strategies and learn how to navigate the market to build new wealth. Welcome
0: to another episode of Leverage Addicts. is Brandon here, and on this episode of our podcast, we have two special guests, Jack and Carl from Provincia Property Fund. They're here to share the expertise on the world of commercial real estate investing and how residential property investors can benefit from expanding into this realm. As founders of Provincia, Jack and Carl have a wealth of knowledge and experience to share, including how they made the transition from residential to commercial real estate, the challenges that residential investors might face when making this transition and the fundamentals of commercial real estate investing. Now, whether or not you're a seasoned investor or just starting out on your investing journey, this episode is sure to provide you some valuable insights and tips to help you navigate the world of commercial real estate. So sit back, relax and join us as we explore the exciting opportunities that commercial real estate investing can offer Welcome Jack and Carl. Hi there.
1: Hi, thanks Blended. <laughs> awesome,
0: as a tradition to this podcast, you're a new guest. So what happens is you kind of need to share how much leverage you guys have, but um, we'll make it an exception today because you guys run a fund. So you guys can tell tell us what the uh, leverage that you guys have in your fund and um, sort of what's the portfolio sitting at, at the moment.
2: So in terms of commercial property, we're quite lowly geared so we're only at 40 percent so you can with commercial property go to up to 60 65 percent but we're uh, running at 30 percent 40 percent and um so currently at just over 40 million is that right jack yeah yeah Yeah. definitely yeah so um reasonable amount of debt but um as you know the leverage works
0: yeah and we'll, we'll we'll get into a little bit more why um, you might stay at that LVR, uh, as we sort of get along with the podcast as well. So that's, that's really awesome. So it's a first hundred mil portfolio we have on the podcast. <laughs> that's going to be uh, a bit of fun that we're going to uh, have a lot of learning from. So with my first question here, Carl, I wanted to know because, um, uh, from previous sort of podcasts and, uh, listening to, um, you as a guest speaker. Uh, my understanding was that you were quite big in residential and then sort of later on you transitioned into commercial real estate so what i really wanted to just get the audience to understand is what inspired you to sort of make that step and what were you thinking about what problems were you trying to solve um, with commercial uh, real estate that you couldn't do with residential
2: yeah i guess um Brandon, the main thing is um when you're a residential investor you you know, you're there for the long term, looking for capital gain, and um, and you don't get a lot of cash flow. So, um, and most most of the um, the rent goes to the pay, pay the mortgage, and um, so and but in the end, you end up with pretty good gain in equity, and and you, you get to a point in your life where you need some cash flow, and that's when I started thinking about uh, commercial property, and reading books on commercial property, and really just learning about commercial property. And um, so, yeah, the main thing is for cash flow. And I think Jack would agree with that as well. Um, you know, you get you get much better yields, um, you get much longer term leases, so less hassles. And um, yeah, so it's really turning that equity that you've made in residential into um, cash flow, real money, so you don't have to work all the time.
0: I see. Is it okay, maybe you can give us a little bit more insights on where your residential portfolio was at before you started thinking about this? Like, um, perhaps you might run into that challenge, like on a weekly or a monthly. And then finally, you're like, you got a light bulb moment to try and figure out, okay, what do I need to do next?
2: Yeah, I think it was just, you know, having a young family and um, needing a bit more real cash money uh, made, made me sort of think that um, you know that we, we need to turn that turn those residential assets into cash flow. And, um, and I've been doing um, residential for 20 something years, and made some reasonably good gains and had, had properties and in, in good capital gain areas, which is really, really important, because a lot of investors um, that I knew went out to the, the cheap areas. And um, even though you're getting this cash flow, it was really important to invest in those high gain, um, capital gain areas like um, what well, was quite a while ago. But so that was Greyland, Ponsonby, Mount Eden, Mount Wellington, Glen Innes, um, those Auckland areas. And um, yeah, so did, did pretty well there. Um, got sick of being a landlord um, <laughs> and all the hassles. Um, um, Jack's Jack's just jumping into into the Hamilton area, which you'll probably you'll tell you about, and he's he's got commercials down there as well. Um, so he's kind of doing the transition and doing both.
0: Yeah, I see, I see. Yeah. So perhaps Jack, you can share a little bit about what you've learned about the sort of difference, you know, having residential and having commercial. Uh, what what is the what is the difference for for you, and sort of like why? would you consider the alternative
1: yeah i think the key difference difference for me um about having both of them was that the residential market you 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 were reliant on the residential market um as opposed to and 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 strict you know tidying up the building um so cosmetic items like you know painting redecorating the bathroom redoing the kitchen that's the way to add value with residential and what's quite common that's what i did on some of my original um, residential properties, which is where I started in in Hamilton as well. But then with commercial, what we found um, being in commercial for the past eight years now, um, it's much easier to create and add value. And that's simply from renegotiating the lease. So the the key difference between commercial property and residential property with commercial is you can create and add value from renegotiating the lease so it's all about the lease agreement you have with the tenant and then who the tenant is so it's much easier and better to add value and there's really good cash flow that can be gained from commercial property I see
0: so one of the things that we talk about with our audience is the three C's in properties right we've got the cash flow basic you know the rental income that comes in obviously uh, from what you guys are sort of advocating is that the cash flow often is slightly better because you don't have as much expenses in a in a commercial property and Um,
1: yeah and just to add to that another key difference is is the tenants pay a lot of the outcomes so a part of the um, operating expenses such as your management fees your insurance your rates which you have to pay as a residential owner um, is actually passed on to the tenants in most leases so you don't have to pay those, which is great.
2: Key difference with um, commercial yields is that the commercial yield is a net yield normally, when you talk about 7%, because all the, um, like Jack was saying, all the outgoings are taken care of. Um, but generally with residential, you talk about a gross yield of whatever. And um, on top of that, you've got to pay your you
0: know your rates and your maintenance and things like that cool so now that's the cash flow difference now in terms of capital gains from your experience sort of how does the uh capital gains work in a commercial because like let's say if you lock in a six seven year lease uh whereas residential is kind of looking at like the average seven percent um market return over the years how does the commercial one differ
2: yeah so there's um two components is the market so um Commercial will have its its ups and downs very much like residential and you'll see market gains but there's no real kind of rule of thumb. Um, But the good thing about commercial is that you can always um, buy, you can buy commercial property in any any economic environment and add value simply by changing the lease. So um, Jack and I like to talk about um, the pen and the paintbrush which is the difference between um, residential and commercial. You know with residential you're painting stuff and you're adding bedrooms and you're spending quite a bit of money but um with a commercial property you can go along with a new lease and your pen quite cheap cheap um ballpoint pen and you can add literally hundreds of thousands of dollars
0: okay so moving on from the cash flow we talked about cash flow capital gains um it's about so what you guys are sort of uh, alluding to is uh the not not only is it the market Um, capital gains, but also you're looking at potentially what kind of lease you have. So you can make it uh, worth a lot more if you can negotiate better terms. And I guess that's sort of um, the other spectrum of sorry. The other thing about residential is, you know, we always talk about capital improvement where you could add add money to the deal to actually increase the equity position or cash flow. And a lot of it at the moment is about development potential. like are there a lot of that in sort of like commercial as well in in terms of um, development potential does that actually add to to your valuation a lot of the time
1: Yep, hugely it is definitely taken into consideration and what we like to do is we like to try and build that into the leases so your development potential might be um it could be a huge rear yard section that comes with part of the building and that might be under rentalized so as long as you've um, factored it into part of the lease and it mentions within the lease that the current tenant or tenants occupy, or you make use of that space, you can catch that on the next rent review. So that's one way to um, unlock that future development potential and actually utilize it for cash flow or future gain. Or you can also factor it into the price so that maybe they're not using it, but that's spare land. So you can create something from that additional land, which is actually a premium to the price
0: talking about provincia again maybe you can share with us the story of how you guys sort of got into it and what drove you guys to pursue you know starting this uh, commercial property fund
2: yep so we um jack and i ran well through our learnings we learned a lot about commercial property through owning our own stuff and um we ran courses on how to get started in commercial property so um and we assisted people to find properties and set them up in them And um, we had a group that wanted exposure to a bigger commercial property. So, um, and there was seven of those and they, um, and basically Jack and I formed our first syndicate. So it was um, a $4 million property with seven investors and and we managed it. And so we managed all the finances as well for that very first property. And then that was, um, what, six years ago, Jack? Yeah, yeah. So that was um, four point two million. We purchased that for, and um, Jack had a lot of fun. He was a project manager on that, fresh out of uni, and um, but it had no co-compliance. So um, that the the owner, who was also the tenant, had done all this work um, without consents. So Jack and I, Jack and I went in there, and we had to assess what what it was going to cost to fix it up. And um, Jack had a lot of fun, (laughs) project managing, and and eventually got this this co-compliance. But by doing that, it was a bit of a do-up, the um, leases were not very strong, they were very short. Um, So we we bought the property for um, 4.2, spent um, about 200 on it um today that property what's the valuation jack's seven oh
1: just just 7.8 million 7.8 million
2: so that's a little bit of the market um a lot of um buying well because this property had sat it sat on the market for about two years had all the real estate signs falling over on the on the pavement and um and that alerted us we thought that was an opportunity.
0: Yeah, so that's actually quite interesting. So you guys syndicated that deal. um, But without the consent, uh, did you have to get all cash from the investors or did you actually finance some of it as well?
1: We had it. um, That first one was 45% financed um, with the bank because what we did is under the due diligence when we are assessing what it would cost us um, to get the CCC in place, we got a certificate of public use, a CPU in place which means the tenants can keep trading in the current building whilst we undertook the work to get the CCC and so the banks were happy with that because we had all the project laid out what needed to be done we had it all costed and what had to be done to get the CCC and we got that CPU in place before we went unconditional which kept the tenants trading so
0: so that's quite interesting because like in a residential property, it's unlikely, even if you can get some costing on how to fix that property, you're not going to get main bank finance, maybe you potentially get second tier finance, like was that done through a main bank or sort of like a second tier? finance? That was year?
2: done through a main bank. Um, so we had to have certainty that we could get eventually get those CCCs. So we had to get a lot of um, engineering advice, and um, build building advice prior to getting the loan. And so part of our loan condition was that we got the CCC by a certain date. Um, so, but they'd still, they still let us draw down the, the funds for settlement. So, um, yeah, so, so eventually Jack got all the co-compliance and it was um, bit of a bit of an effort. But um, he got it done in the end, got it ticked off. I actually framed his, um, his first co-compliance certificate and he
0: has it on his wall in his office it sounded like quite the journey and a lot of learning in there and so the interesting thing what you guys sort of talk about is uh, obviously there are so many things to unpack here because I, I think uh, maybe the first one is perhaps what was the in uh, capital position after you actually did all of the work that you wanted to do you you obviously put the pen to paper and you know got some new leases uh you got the work of the ccc done um do you guys remember what the equity uplift I'm, I'm pretty sure you you would remember your first your first big win so
1: yep.
2: yeah definitely remember that <laughs> yeah. so so it's pretty much immediately valued up to just over 6 million um and with a total cost of 4.5 4.5 and wow. then and then the market's done a bit of work so it's up around 7.2 now yeah
0: yeah so that there was a 25% gain on equity um and then also what was the cash flow position on costs at the at the very end um
2: oh so total costs in the end were about three hundred thousand.
0: just about
2: yeah.
1: that just shy yeah, yeah. yeah. oh
0: yeah. sorry what I, what i was saying was um like your after you change the lease what was the what was the net yield on the on the cost of 4.5 million
1: that's a good question
0: um <laughs>
1: yeah so we're getting yeah. basically we're getting two um 205 from one of the tenants and then the tenant at the rear was actually very under rented so we didn't actually get that um, uplift in that rear tenant until midway about six months in so that was at the end of the project because when we bought it we realized that their lease had been tied into a cpi so consumer price index rent review which means their rent they were paying was very much under rented under market rent so they're on a cheap rent they're actually only paying um just over 100 so at the time, so we had 205 in the front, 100 at the back, and then there was one other tenant paying 30. So what's that?
0: 335000 and then over 4.5 million costs. You're looking at a 7.4% net yield.
1: Yep. And that's just the beginning because six months in, we got a real um, big upside when the um, tenants at the back left because we we're able to get a new tenant in on a substantially higher um rental amount and much better lease so there was more upside that we unlocked during the first six months
2: so what happened with the rear tenant Brandon was that uh, they were on a I don't know what they call a CPI inflation-based uh lease so their their rent hadn't caught up with the market so it was way behind and when they called us into the office to say they wouldn't be re- renewing their lease. Um, Jack and I couldn't keep the smiles off our faces <laughs> because we were able to get a, a, a new tenant in there paying market rent. And how, what was
0: the uplift on that,
1: Jack? The initial uplift. So that went from 100, which they were paying to 165. So it's another wow. 65 grand. So
0: Basically, you're on 400,000 now by the time he left. And then now it's on 4.5 mil costs. And so at the end, you got like almost 9% yield, uh, 8.89% net yield. That's amazing. Like, um, can I get on the next syndicate, please? (laughs) Well, this is really awesome, because um, this uh, case study kind of answers almost like three questions in one go. Uh, But what's really interesting is because you talk about a syndicate, and maybe you can give me the basics of what a syndicate actually means? And how do you structure? one?
2: Yeah, so our first setup was, um, I guess it was syndicate. So it was a Um, a limited liability company. And um, all the shareholders had a proportional share in that company and the company owned the property. So that's quite a typical structure. And um, if if it was um, to be just a syndicate on its own, it would just stay like that. And um, everyone would get a share of the the, um, profits at the end of the year or the dividends. Um, But we, we just grew that company. So it was just a single company and still is a single company, and we now own 13 properties um, worth about um, just over 100 million. And, um, and we have 132? 138. 138 investors. Yeah. Um, but this, it's the same company. So one company owning all the properties and the shareholders own shares in the company. So it's really simple. And we thought that was the best, best structure. So the difference between a, f- a fund and a syndicate is that a fund is much bigger and, and lots of properties.
0: Yeah. So syndicate, I guess, if you could do individual deals, like it's usually more about individual deals where maybe the property fund, my understanding is, you've got a lot more diversification, like as soon as you come in, would you say that's about what it is? Yep,
2: that, that's the, the biggest bonus, um, say if someone was choosing to invest in a, syn- a small syndicate that had three or four properties over a fund, which is what we are, it is that diversification, it's having um, 23 tenants versus say five tenants, you know, if, if a tenant goes under, it's it's um, not, not a biggie for us because we've got 23 tenants paying paying multiple streams of income um so that's yeah so syndicates your risk is a bit higher
0: so. so we talked about how you guys are sort of like only using like 40 percent leverage um and then we talked about like these joint venture entities where you have multiple people owning the company now residential investor they love coming in to ask about this question like oh like I've got a few friends like we want to buy a property together and the answer is usually like no you can't because uh, the more people you add to a deal in the residential property, the more complexity it is for financing because there's a multi household expense calculation, which makes it a lot harder when they're trying to do joint ventures. I mean, in some t- situation where, you know, everyone is in a very strong financial position. Yes, uh, it could work. but. Um, You know, like it doesn't work for like the average residential, you know, mom and dad trying to invest with the kids. But in your situation, you guys are talking about like a company with multiple shareholders, you know, like your first deal, you've got seven uh, investors. Um, And so maybe you guys can give us a rundown on the financing terms for commercial properties and um, maybe you can walk us the advantage um, of, of structuring a deal like this.
2: Yeah, so um, if you're an individual, you could probably go to a maximum of sixty percent on a commercial property, um, because we're a fund, um, and because there's no personal guarantees, so they don't look at all our individual. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so it's a, it's a good thing. Um, so, so we're we're forty percent LVR, and that's that's our our pretty much our maximum with the bank, and um, anything over that they'd ask for personal guarantees, so um, so they'd, they'd be looking at our individual shareholders' um, financial position. But if, if we're um, if we're under 40%, they just take the property as security, and and they're happy that, that it's a low LVR, and we've got. They look at our, our rent rent income, our rental income, um, and serviceability. Um, if you're an individual buying a property they'll obviously look at your other assets um most people get started in their first commercial property by leveraging their residential um so they can get residential lending which is um and resident use their residential security as well um jack do you want to jack's just going through this (laughs) at the moment so um
1: (laughs) yeah Yes. Exactly that. Yeah, so they either yeah, made their money in, in residential, whether that's by realising the game by selling a residential property. I've done that in the past. So um, my first couple, I sold my residentials and that's how I got into my first commercial myself personally. Um, so I took the equity, realised the equity in my residentials, sold, and then I used that money with bank debt to buy um, the commercial property. Or we've seen a lot of our investors uh, from our what we used to do, um, they leveraged from their residential portfolio, which Cal just touched on. So, using their that equity that's in their residential property, leverage off that residential property to buy commercial property.
0: Yeah. So let me try and unpack this and uh, correct me if I'm wrong at any any point. So my understanding of what Carl is explaining with the with the general security um, loan is that. You can borrow on a commercial property without looking at your personal income situation, Um, but it would sort of limit to that 40% mark.
1: Yeah, 40 to 45, depending on what the bank covenants are. So with our bank covenants, Cal mentioned it's 40%, um, but it's a general security agreement, so basically the way it's structured is the banks have the security over all the properties. So all the properties, they've got a GSA, General Security Agreement, across and that's why the leverage is quite a lower rate of 40 percent, but they've got security over the lot so there's no personal guarantees from any of the directors or any of the shareholders
2: so so they have a, a general security agreement over the over the company and they have the uh, mortgage securities on the um, on the properties
0: so that's the secret to scaling the the portfolio and i guess uh am i assuming correctly that perhaps an investor comes in um, on the fund, you know, they might come in with cash, but they don't have the debt obligation under their ass- assets and liability as well. So they basically get leverage on their money when they put the money in. But um, they don't have that liability on their on their balance sheets when they go back to the bank to borrow personally.
1: Correct. So they've got um no yeah exactly that no liability on their balance sheet and some of the banks will recognize the income so the dividends from the shares so they'll take shares in the company minimum minimum investments fifty thousand, but some banks will recognize the income from those shares
0: perfect but and so uh, sort of what you're um talking about Jack is like you're in this position where you're transitioning from residential to commercial essentially sold some but you're still able to maybe borrow off your residential equity and get residential terms on those on, on that property. And then for the rest of it, and then for the rest of it, you're just using cash. So you're still getting the residential terms, like interest rate, interest only five years, 30 year term, but you could buy a commercial property that way because you've got a lot of equity.
1: Yep, exactly. That's one of the best ways to do it. So you get some really good rates, your residential rates, your long term, and then, then you use that to purchase part or all of the commercial property
0: that's awesome and the one thing I did want to ask before we move on to the next question was uh because we talked about the upside you know you've got massive equity gain in that property uh, but obviously there were some like there were probably some massive hoops that you guys have jumped through probably like a lot of stress as well like it will be really good maybe perhaps you can share some of the unique challenges that commercial investors actually face as well because, even though they got obviously a higher upside, but usually the the theory of financing is that, you know, with higher, higher returns, you're expecting a higher risk, what are the risks and challenges that commercial investors face?
2: Um, I I think it's just the complexity of of the commercial property. And in terms of understanding the leases, and being able to um, get a good lease and, and Secure tenants on a long, long-term lease. There's also the the project management side. You you have to um, understand a fair bit about building and engineering and and um, dealing with the council. Um, it's a little bit more complex than residential. Um, just a little bit, bit bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a little
0: bit. Yeah, a little bit, Jack. Yeah, especially. Well, with well, the tell, tell us. Tell um, us. Tell us what's the difference in in terms of. Uh, the documents, like a tenancy agreement might only be like four or five pages. What are you what are you looking at with the typical commercial lease? A general
1: general data lease, so your Auckland District Law Society leases, they're about forty-five odd pages long. And that's just a generic one. And we've seen leases that are anywhere over a hundred pages long. Because anything can be added to those commercial leases.
2: So so with as you know, with um residential, you're restricted to the lease that the government has Drafted, or the residential tenancy agreement. Um, With um, commercial, you have the the base basic agreement, the Auckland District Law Society agreement. And as Jack was saying, you can do anything to that lease. You can basically stipulate that the tenant has to come around on Sundays and mow your lawn um, every two weeks. Um.
0: So you can get creative (laughs) with it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah no that's that's really awesome and so i guess for a newer investor you know sort of like from resi going into commercial um what do you see as the biggest thing that they should try and overcome or or learn about first um, before they get into it
2: i think it's like anything when you're getting into residential you read hundreds of books and and we did the same we had you know both got big libraries of books about commercial property and investment and um, we're, we're fortunate enough to have a couple of good mentors as well. People who had been in commercial property for you know 50 years and, um, and they, they were always willing to help and point you in the right direction. So it's just learning learning about the lease is really important. Um, it's really just you know having a go. it's going out with the agents or not literally going out with them but going and meeting.